Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Please join me in welcoming Christopher Chuck. In any case, uh, Attila the Hun, by the way, here's um, sources, and I, we, can, we can throw that back up if you haven't copied them down or if you're interested uh, for tonight. And especially we're going to use uh, this guy, uh, Henri Daniel Rowe, French historian from the middle of the 20th century. Absolutely superb. Everything he's written is good. The Church in the Dark Ages, superb book. Uh, but in any case, tonight we're not going to so much talk about, I'm going to get this down, we're not going to so much talk about Attila tonight as this man, Pope St. Leo the Great. Uh, pretty long reign, especially for this age, right? 21 years, the 10th longest reign in the history of the papacy. And who, who are the other nine? <laughs> I'll tell you four of them. St. Peter uh, reigned from, you know, I don't know, what, about 33 to around 60, something like that. Right, Pius the Ninth is number two, Pope Saint John Paul the second, and another Leo, uh, uh, someone who's very dear to me, Leo the Fourteenth. But anyway, extraordinary man and one of two popes uh, who's called the Great. The other one is Gregory the Great. Some people add Nicholas the Great. I know a lot of people refer to John Paul the Great, and time will will tell. Time will tell. Uh, here's a photograph of Leo. Right there, he is right there. How do you know this is not a photograph? <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll tell you. Because he's wearing the papal tiara, right? And we actually don't see the papal tiara until about three centuries after Leo. So it's, it's, a, it's, a sta it's staged, it's staged. <laughs> Our goals tonight, uh, we're gonna get a sense of the age of Pope St. Leo the Great. And here, what do I mean? I mean, why should we care? Why should we care about this age? Why should Catholics today want to know, or better, why, should we, why do we need to understand the middle of the 5th century AD? All right? And I'm going to suggest uh, three reasons. Okay? I'm going to suggest three reasons. Uh, we, want, we, we don't know who we are unless we know this age. Okay? Better, we don't know from where we came unless we understand we have some grasp of this age. Last time I was out here, we talked about the Punic Wars and their influence on salvation history. The events of the 5th century AD have even more direct impact on the church, on what becomes Christendom. I'm going to quote from Daniel Rowe. Although the 5th century was an epoch of chaos and degradation, it was also a time of vital preparation. From its filth and blood, the future was growing. From this terrible melting pot, much later on was to come the civilization which is our own. The really great events of this century, the halting of Attila, for example, have had an enormous effect on the destinies of the Western world greater by far than the Roman Wars or the expeditions of Alexander. We are the descendants of this age of chaos, or more accurately, of the order which came from this chaos. We can't, number two, we can't get a proper understanding of the papacy unless we understand this age, okay? It is during this age and under this pope, Leo I, that the papacy comes into its own. All right? And three, insofar as we can grasp the incarnation, right? it's a mystery to be sure, and since the incarnation is the central reality and mystery of our faith, this age is something we should devote contemplation to. 
So insofar as we can grasp the incarnation, we can because of the theological controversies that were worked out and resolved during this age, during this age, all right? And by the way, inextricably linked to our understanding of the incarnation, also our understanding of the order of grace and the order of nature. And we'll come back to that near the end of the talk, but park that away. So if we get through these things tonight, and everyone is still awake, right? I think that will be a case of, of, of grace acting on nature, right? As, as St. Thomas says, grace perfecting nature, he says. And we'll see why that's central to our story. All right, let's try to get our imaginations around the world of the fifth century AD. All right, the world of the fifth century AD. The geopolitical world, the condition of the church, and then this new element that comes into the story, the barbarians, the barbarians. So the Mediterranean world, let's take a look at the world in which our story takes place. Let's set the stage by going back in time more than a century to a man named Constantine, okay? It's difficult to overstate the impact on not just the history of the church, but the history of the West, really, of this man. All right, he proclaimed formal toleration of Christianity. He became a Christian himself near, very near the end of his life. And the effect of this was the wonderful fourth century, right? The, the 300s, right? The growth of the church. One of the manifestations of this that we see are houses, that are converted into churches. If you've ever been to Rome, I know some of you have been to Rome, some of the oldest churches in Rome sit atop what are called titular, uh, they're, they're called titular churches because these were houses and people put the title out in front. These were houses and now like Santa Pudenziana, Santa Persede, some of these really, really old ones. Uh, so houses are converted into church, but also during this time, out, just outside the Serbian wall, right, the building of the Constantinian basilicas, St. Peter's, of course, being the big one. Um, so the growth of the church during this magnificent time, a complete change in the fortunes of the church. From persecution, right, for three centuries, and I, I think we've done the martyrs talk here, I don't know, but off and on, sporadic persecution, sometimes very fierce, right? So from persecution to what? State religion extraordinary what happens because of the influence of this man, this man, Constantine. He was not an obviously spiritual man, right? He was Machiavellian, really, in many senses. He is proof that God uses unlikely vessels, right? He delayed baptism just until uh, he was about to die. But for our purposes tonight, he founded... Constantinople, right? He founded this city on the Bosporus. Anybody been to Istanbul? Anybody been? Yeah. I, I call it, we should call it Constantinople. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the founding of this city had immense religious consequence. This is the first Christian city, right? Designed to be a Christian city, right? But, also, and this is critical to our understanding of the age that is to follow, by moving, actually this begins with Diocletian, really, when, when he moves, uh, to, uh, when, when, he, when he creates the Tetrarchy, divides the empire in half, right? Um, but by formally moving the center of political authority of the Roman Empire to Constantinople, what does Constantine do? He leaves Rome to the growing authority of whom? The Bishop of Rome. Now, I'm not telling you this was Constantine's purpose. There's not a shred of evidence that it was, all right? But we can see in God's providence, in salvation history, the best understanding of history that we can have. It is clear now that the way is clear for the papacy to come into its own, into its own. 
The creation of Constantinople also meant that the Roman Empire would persist after its fall, and we give that date 476, right? Odokar deposes the last emperor of Rome, uh, persist for another 1,100 years, roughly. All right, well, since the founding of Constantinople, a thousand since the fall of the West. A longer period than that which had elapsed from Romulus and Remus to the fall of Rome in the West. Right. When Constantine became emperor, he continued, and here's another important point, he continued as a matter of course to exercise the prerogatives that Roman emperors had always exercised as the head of the state religion, okay? And if he had remained in Rome as the Christian emperor, then he would have overshadowed the Pope. So all of you know, uh, even, even in the time of the Republic, but especially in the, uh, but especially in the time of the empire, beginning with Augustus, the emperors, the Pontifex Maximus, Pontifex Maximus, right? The Pontifex Max, and, it, and the emperor has the the prerogative and authority over the state religions. So, it, it, some Protestants, especially when they call the show, when they call Catholic Answers Live, when we do shows on history, they're like, "Well, Constantine invented, you know, the Catholic faith, or something like that." Or, and and so, and a lot of times, in, in, when we look at the early history and we see emperors calling councils of the church, that seems very strange to us, right? It does. But we have to understand that this is a, this is, this, 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 this is the tradition that they are simply taking from those emperors who had preceded them. So it's, na it's a natural progression. But if Constantine had stayed in the West, then he would have overshadowed, he would have overshadowed the Bishop of Rome. So let's move ahead. A century after Constantine. Oh, now I don't know which way I'm going. Nine, I think. Very good. Rome in the West is in decay. All right? Uh, who, by the way, is the great chronicler? And so we're a century ahead of Constantine, so we're in the middle of the early part of the 400s, early part of the 5th century. Who's the great chronicler of this age? He's a Catholic. He's a bishop from North Africa. St. Augustine, right, city of God, all right? He's the great chronicler of, of this age, right? But what we have is we have, a, we have a bloated state and we have a decadent culture. I'm just gonna borrow from Daniel Rowe here, bear with me, because he gives a, he's got a good summary. Page, where are we? I marked these, good, all right. Moreover, the heavy yoke of the state sterilized those forces which still had some life left in them. Does this sound familiar, by the way? Yeah. It is scarcely necessary to catalog the vices of the system yet again. The late empire had no monopoly of them. They are the vices that always appear whenever the state usurps its real function and attempts to absorb everything. There was an enormous bureaucracy, so enormous that one contemporary complained that there were more bureaucrats than taxpayers. Right? Now, it, now it is starting to sound familiar? Right. <laughs> Empire was in a state of permanent financial crisis, which organized inflation. We have a different word for that now. We call it quantitative easing, right? Exactly. The usual monetary manipulations. None of this is new, right? None of this is new. A crushing and insane fiscal policy resulted in widespread tax evasion. The cost of living rose constantly. Yes, yeah. You all are very familiar with the, this age. There's a, there's a Roman historian, Erosius, who tells us that Romans preferred to live in poverty and freedom among the barbarians rather than submit to the crushing burden of tax, taxation. And there's another Roman historian, his name is Salvinius, Salvianus, rather. He says, the poor, exasperated wretches often hoped that the enemy would come. They prayed to God to send them the barbarians, right? <laughs> and now here, we'll continue with Daniel Rowe. In addition to the bloated state, this is also gonna sound very familiar to you, all right? Christianity was established by now in classical society, but it, it's not gonna transform it in a day, all right? We need only open St. Augustine, St. Jerome, or any father of the epic to find proof 
that evangelization had not been able to halt the moral disintegration from the idle upper classes who lived only for luxury, for silks from the east, perfumes, jeweled rings on every finger, down to the ordinary idle man in the street who spent his time gambling. There was scarcely a free man who was willing to do an honest day's work. It is useless to dwell on sexual morality. Divorce, male and female, prostitution, a falling birth rate, reached scandalous proportions. Despite imperial efforts to lessen their horror and their number, the gory gladiatorial games, look at the, look at the motion pictures of, of our age and the, and the brutality depicted in them, right? Continued to provide the mob with its degrading entertainment, right? St. Augustine speaks sadly of those wretches who amuse themselves with carnivals and vile spectacles, even while the enemy is at the gates slaughtering their brethren. Okay, so that's a, that's a snapshot of the age and one that will be uh, familiar to you, familiar to you. So this age is ripe for what? These guys, barbarians, right? And this is the Greek, barbaros, and it's a, it's a Greek word, and basically it's anybody who doesn't speak Greek, right? So it goes blah, 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 when they talk, and that's, you know, what, that's what the word, that, no, that's where the word comes from, right? Blah, 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 yeah. So, uh, so these guys, the barbarians. So who were they? Well, pretty much all of you, okay? <laughs> unless you're of Greek or Asian, right? Uh, unless you're of Greek or Italian descent, odds are there's a considerable amount of barbarian blood in, any of, in you. And frankly, even if you are of Greek or Italian descent, there probably is too because they made it down into the, both those peninsulas in, in <laughs> considerable number. So there's a good chance that, at least. So let's make sense of these barbarian invasions. <laughs> Well, insofar as we can. And this is a confused and bewildering time. And I'm going to go to Daniel Rowe again. All right, bear with me. Okay, so here we go. Start taking notes. About the year 400, the barbarian map looked rather like this. The Federation of the Franks stretched the whole length of the Rhine from the North Sea to the Main and was bounded from the basin of the Weser as far as the Elbe by the Saxons and between the Elbe and the Upper Main by the Lombards a little farther south were the giant-like Burgundians who had originally come from Brandenburg and whose territory adjoined the lower reaches of the Rhine and the Mens. The Alamans, momentarily checked by the victories of Emperor Julian, were henceforth installed in the former Roman territories known as the Agri Documentes, known as prodigious raiders. They were among the most dangerous of the barbarians. This left the Marcomans in Bohemia, the Rugians and the Herulians in the surrounding area. These were less important in contrast to these two stronger Germanic federations were drawn up along the Danube. The Vandals occupied the area extending as far as present-day Austria. Tacitus has already described them as a vicious people familiar with all the tricks of warfare. Beyond them were the Goths, who had arrived in the region 65 years from uh, their original home in Vistula. Henceforth, they were to be the masters of Dacia, the ancient bastion of Trajan. That's in Spain. They were divided into two groups, the brilliant Goths or the Ostrogoths, who faced the Sea of Azov, and the wise Goths or Visigoths, who faced the emperor. And in the rear behind this line of peoples, others were waiting and pressing forward, Angles and Jutes in what is now Denmark, Scyrians and Galicia, Norwegians, Geats, and Swedes in Scandinavia, and on the Russian plain, Slavs and Wends in the north, Quadi and Japeti in the south, Alans on the shore of the Black Sea. Meantime, way back in the infinity of the Asiatic steppes, sprawled the Ural Alchic tribes, shifting, intermingling with one another, getting ready for the future. It was the thrust of these yellow-skinned folk which was to set the drama in motion. The most famous of them were the Huns. Okay, confused? Good. You should be, and you can believe that the people of this age were confused. Certainly Holy Mother Church was, or at least her ministers. And yet the bishops and the priests and the faithful of this age could not fail to understand any more than we can of our own age today that one age is passing and another age is dawning. All right, the barbarian invasion. Got this? Good, because there's, there's a quiz. Yeah. You're, you'll redraw that. We'll shut it off and everybody will redraw this map. All right, the barbarian invasion is misunderstood. We call it an invasion, but really it is what? An immigration. It's an immigration. Okay? The Germans have a word for it. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure this out before the end of the evening. The Volkerwanderung, right? The wandering of the peoples, the migration of the peoples. So if you're a barbarian, this is what you say, Volkerwanderung. If you're civilized, this is the word in Latin. Migratio gentium. Ah, that sounds so much more civilized, doesn't it? Yeah. So the migration of the peoples, all right? The details of this event are way beyond the scope of our conversation tonight, to say nothing of my knowledge, right? But there are three things that we have to understand about this barbarian invasion. One, barbarians had long been integrated into the Roman Empire, all right, well before this. And, and chiefly how? How? Yeah, right, they were serving in the armed forces, right? And in fact, uh, they, they, they served in these units called federati, right? Uh, sometimes whole units ethnically, uh, um, you know, cohesive, right? Uh, more important than that, the barbarians did not desire the conquest of Rome. What did they want? They wanted to be Romans. They wanted to be part of Rome. All right, Henri Daniel Rowe, I think this is the last time I'm going to go to him, but he's pretty good, so I, I, you shouldn't be tired of him. You should, right? Therefore, whether one is considering here we go, here we are, here we are. This is the fact which must never be forgotten when considering the barbarian invasions. These peoples had at least a vague understanding of classical civilization, which was often of long standing, and the majority of them admired it. These soldiers who had been serving along Romans now for a century or more, they wanted to be Romans. They wanted to be Romans as early as the second century, all right? These barbarian chieftains who we tend to group together as a kind, as savages, in, char in charge of savage hordes, could speak Latin and very often Greek and knew how to appreciate the good things of civilization. And here's one example that Henri Delano gives us. Alaric the Visigoth, the, uh, when he conquers Athens, what does he ask for as a ransom on his seizure of Athens? He asks for the debt, for the right to spend the day walking through the streets of Athens, saluting Phidias' statue in the Parthenon, having the platonic dialogue of Timaeus read to him, listening to, or seeing uh, the, the play The Persians at the theater, right? Uh, dialoguing with the philosophers, all right? So these people wanted to be part of classical civilization. Now, there was one exception, the Huns. They did not. <laughs> they did not, right? They had no interest. They had no interest. So who were these Huns? Well, Ammianus Marcellinus, everybody, everybody still awake? Ammianus Marcellinus, contemporary historian of this age, some of you have heard this before. This is how he described them. The seedbed and origin of all this destruction and the various calamities inflicted by the wrath of Mars, which raged everywhere with unusual fury, I find to be this. The people of the, the Huns, who are mentioned only cursorily by ancient writers and who dwell beyond the Sea of Azov near the frozen ocean, are quite abnormally savage. From the moment of birth, they make deep gashes in their children's cheeks so that in due course hair appears in growth is checked by the wrinkled scars. As they grow older, this gives them an unlovely appearance of beardless eunuchs. They have squat bodies, strong limbs, and thick necks, and are so prodigiously ugly and bent that they might be two-legged animals or the figures crudely carved from stumps which are seen on the parapets of bridges. Still, their shape, however disagreeable, is human. But their way of life is so rough that they have no use for fire or seasoned food, but live on the roots of wild plants and in the half-raw flesh of any sort of animal, which they warm a little by placing it between their thighs and the backs of their horses. This is, they are totally ignorant of the distinction between right and wrong. Their speech is shifty and obscure and they are under no restraint from religion or superstition. Their greed for gold is prodigious, and they are so fickle and prone to anger that often in a single day they will quarrel with their allies without any provocation and then make up again without any attempt to reconcile with them. Now, this, I have to say, is somewhat of a one-sided <laughs> picture of the Huns. I mean, they, they, were, they were savage warriors, to be true, uh, but Ammianus Marcellinus is a Roman, and 
gets most of it. All right, so the Huns, where do they come from? They come from the steppes, right? That's a favorite word of mine. It doesn't mean like steppe, S-T-E-P-P-S. It's this grassy land right here in the purple, right? And mostly from the Asiatic steppes. That's, uh, that's where they come from. And around the um, uh, second century, well, going back into, into BC, around the transition from BC to AD, you know, they come down into China, and of course, that's when the beginning of the Great Wall starts. And, you know, people say the Great Wall was never effective. Actually, it was. Um, it didn't hold out whole armies, but it kept out these raiding bands of Huns for a long time. In fact, you know, had that Great Wall not been built, uh, history might have been different because the, the, the Huns were stopped by it, and then, you know, they decided to go to come our way, all right? By the way, the Great Wall you cannot see from space. I know people say that. It's like the one man-made object you can see from space that, that isn't even remotely true. So it's a little tidbit that I discovered doing this lecture, preparing for this lecture. So instead, they go into Eastern Europe. And then they go into Western Europe. And they get to France. And in France, they go, they're on their way to Paris. And who, by the intercession of which saint, do they not come to Paris? Anybody know? Saint Genevieve or Saint Genevieve, right? And the men are all cowering, but she gathers the women of Paris, and they fast and pray and fast and pray, and the Huns decide not to come to Paris. Instead, they go to Orléans, and they put Orléans under siege. It's interesting. A lot of the area where the Huns are fighting in France is the same battleground where many years later, what great lady saint is doing her fighting? Saint Joan of Arc. Right. So Orléans. So they lay siege to Orléans. And at the last moment, the siege of Orléans is lifted by a Roman general who's the, the ranking general in the West, a man named Aetius. And Aetius, by the way, is, is half barbarian. He's half Latin, half barbarian. And then Aetius and... Um, do we... Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, okay. Well, um, so Aetius... And uh, Aetius and uh, his Visigoth ally meets uh, Attila on the plains of Chalons, also battleground covered later by Joan of Arc. And they square off at the Battle of Chalons, and the Huns retreat back across, back across the Rhine. Okay, So they go back across the Rhine. A year later, they come down into Italy. All right. And on their way down into Italy, by the way, the story goes that they encounter the people of Venezia, uh, who then flee to where? Mo what is now modern-day Venice. So the story goes that the whole, that whole floating city of Venice began as a consequence of Attila's raid down the Italian peninsula. It's mostly true. There were certainly people living there but, uh, before, but it is true that there, there is this migration. And they're coming down into the Italian peninsula. And at the time, uh, the emperor is a man named Valentin and he, uh, Valentinius, and he's an ineffectual man. And so who does he call for help? And he calls the pope at the time, the topic of our story tonight, Pope Leo I. And Pope Leo I, with an entourage of maybe 10 people, and some say the story goes, carrying the Blessed Sacrament, right? Uh, and, uh, and, and about 10 folks rides out to meet Attila. Now, he doesn't meet Attila outside the gates of Rome, right? He goes all the way up to what is now modern-day Mantova, very close to Lake Garda, so all the way up into northern Italy, all right? He travels to meet him, and they meet. And the, and the meeting of these two is an undeniable fact of history. It can't be denied. Gibb it's in Gibbon. J.B. Burry points it out. There's nobody who denies. But what actually took place in the meeting, we don't know for certain, all right? There's a contemporary account that says that Attila was so overawed by the majesty of Leon of the papacy that he turned around and left and went back across the Rhine. Um, there is some reason to believe that Leo maybe paid off Attila and said, here, don't come to Rome, here's a bag of gold, whatever it was. Raphael gives us a very stylized version of the event. According to one contemporary uh, account, 
St. Peter and St. Paul, with their swords drawn, appear in the sky above Poblio, and this terrifies Adela, who's right there, I think, and he decides to go back across the Rhine. And of course, that is in St. Peter's Basilica, I think, or in the Vatican Museums. I think it's in St. Peter. Anyway, so that is the occasion of the meeting of those two. Attila goes back across the Rhine, and what happens to him a year later? He dies. He dies. He dies on his wedding night. He grabs a beautiful blonde German girl, considerably younger than he was. He's, by now, he's 70-some, right? Grabs a considerably, you know. Yeah, yeah I, it's, it's weird to me, too. Yeah, and, and, he, and, uh, and, and on his wedding night, he dies of some kind of um, uh, nasal hemorrhage or something. He's bleeding out of his nose. So according to one event, the girl poisoned him or he drank too much or whatever it was. But a year after meeting Leo, he dies. Leo has another occasion meeting one of the vandals outside of the gates of Rome. This time he's not able to put him off, but he does get him to agree to what they call a peaceful sack. So they didn't burn anything. There wasn't any rape, but they did go around and you know relieve people of, of their goods, of their goods. So that is uh, that, that, that's that's the event that sent, sent, sets this, these things in motion. Uh, the, barba the barbarians are fleeing uh, Attila and now coming down in, in this time into uh, into Rome, into Rome, and we find Leo at this time asserting himself as because the emperor is this ineffectual kind of weakling, asserting himself as the political authority in the region, okay? But it is also at this time that we see the pope starting to assert himself with ever greater control of the organization and governance of the church, of the church. He's not the first pope to do this, but he is certainly the most forceful, all right? So before him, Throughout the 4th and 5th century, we see examples of popes defining their role as the chief shepherd of the flock of Christ with increasing clarity and precision. And I'm just going to give you two examples, right? Pope St. Sericius, okay? Uh, oh, okay, well, before, even, before Pope St. Sericius, I don't have him on here. Pope Damasus, who's a Spaniard in 382, uh, he claims for himself formally the possession of primacy. Why? Based on the fact that he is the successor of Peter and as uh, our, and by virtue of our Lord's promise to Peter. Pope Damasus, by the way, great story, came to uh, the papacy. You know, back in those days, there, there, would, be, there would be fights in the, in the street over heresies, as we'll see, but also about who's going to become uh, pope. And... Damasus was supported by the gravediggers, the, you know, the guild, they, they weren't guilds at the time, whatever, whatever, the fraternity of the gravediggers. So the gravediggers come up from out of the catacombs with their shovels and their pikes, right? And, uh, and they, and they uh, you know, support uh, Damasus. So there's a little bit of violence uh, that got him installed there. Sounds very appealing. Maybe in the, in the Synod in October, they'll, the, the, the gravediggers will, will show up with their pikes and their shovels. You can strike that from the video. <laughs> His successor, uh, Pope St. Sericius, is the first pope to issue what we call decretals. All right? These are papal decisions on particular issues of general concern bearing, uh, to the church bearing the force of law. The first one is issued to a man named Bishop Hemarius of Tarragona, which is just south of Barcelona. And on there he writes... We bear the burden of all who are burdened, or rather, the blessed apostle Peter bears it in our person, in our person. So you get these popes asserting their authority based on the fact that they are the successor of, their, of Peter. He writes also to bishops in Gaul, to bishops in Africa, to Italian bishops. Also, by the way, in, going back all the way to 390, three, the, the reign of, of uh, St. Sericius, right? Uh, we see what? Celibacy for major orders. All right? Now, there's actually examples earlier than that, but, you know, when you have Protestants telling you this is something that the Catholic Church, you know, invented in the, uh, during the Renaissance or something like that, it isn't even true. It goes, all the, it goes well back to the late antique period. Well, it goes back to the gospel, of course. 
When we come to the reign of Pope Leo I, 440 to 461, we reach one of the momentous turning points in history. He's establishing himself as supreme ruler, supreme teacher, and supreme judge of the church. Okay? So we heard about his demonstration of political authority over Attila, right? But the great triumph of the papacy comes a year later, right? with the events surrounding the Council of Chalcedon. Right? Actually, a year before. Excuse me, a year before. And this map is going to help us through the very complicated story of the Council of Chalcedon. Or some people say Chalcedon, Chalcedon, Chalcedon. All right? But we'll come back to this. But first, I have a question. Was Jesus Christ a human person? No. Who said yes? yes. Who said yes? Okay, you guys are heretics. <laughs> Those of you who said yes, but the good news is we don't burn heretics anymore. Well, actually, I'm not sure that's good news. But, but no, Jesus Christ was a divine person with a human nature and a divine nature. And a divine nature. All right. That's, that's, that's a, a, an easy one to get wrong. And, that's, and this is at the center of what we're going to talk about now for the rest of the evening, this question, all right? The period, let's, now I gotta go back. The period from 325, Council of Nicaea, it's not even up there, good, to 451, Chalcedon, Chalcedon, is the period in which were settled and defined the formula, formulae, formulas, of the great doctrines of the Catholic faith, all right? This is where the Christological questions were settled. That is what we know about the person Jesus Christ. His nature, the natures of the God-man Jesus Christ. His relationship with the Blessed Trinity, the Father in particular, right? But also his relationship with his mother and his relationship with us. With us. These debates are complex. It's easy for the Western minds to, uh, because these debates took place in the East, right, where most of the theology was still being done at this point, um, it, with, with, with all of the theological intricacies of this story, it's very easy for the Western mind to use this pejorative Byzantine, right? But we really should not. We really should not in this case. It's an unjust pejorative to dismiss them in this sense. It's a discredit to the East and to the theologians and faithful of the East. Daniel Rowe, it was to be Byzantine's glory to have sought the truth in this field, painfully, through much disruption, certainly, but sacrificing her life's blood in the attempt. All right? So, let's try to walk through this complex tale. The Arians, the Arian heresy, which I know we talked about when I did Athanasius, but I'm sure you've heard other talks on it and familiar with it, is a, is a heresy with respect to the relationship between the Father and the Son, denies the divinity of Jesus Christ. Nicaea settles the question and declares that the divine and the human, the divinity and the hum, hu, humanity are united, Okay? that the divinity and the humanity of Christ are united. Now, here's our problem. How does this make sense? Right? How, how do we have two things that are distinct, but also united? All right? And at this time, there were generally two, well, there were, there were two schools of theological thought. One was in Egypt, the school in Alexandria, and the other was in Syria, the school in Antioch. And the Alexandrian school, in trying to solve this problem, right, the divinity and humanity of Christ united, in trying to solve this problem, the Alexandrian school goes, goes largely to that beautiful prelude that especially if you go to the uh, extraordinary form, the last gospel is read, in the beginning was God, right? And the word was with God, and the word was God, right? So that opening to John's gospel, and then the school of Antioch in trying to get their imaginations and develop a formula to resolve this mystery insofar as possible goes to the manifest humanity and divinity 
of Christ that appears throughout the Gospels. So all the miracles, examples of his divinity, and then, all, and then his manifest humanity in all the things that he did, like us, except sin, right? The tears that he shed, the suffering that he endured, the friendships that he had. Uh, there are so many examples of the human nature of Christ throughout the Gospels. They're the, the wedding at Cana, I, I mean, so, you know, I like, there, think, there are moments in history that I would long to, I'd like to have been there with Don John of Austria on his galley, right? But to have been an eyewitness to the conversation between our Lord and his mother at Cana and to have seen the tenderness between the two of them. Woman, it's not my time. You can imagine him saying, so beautiful. But in order to resolve this question, we need both. We need John, the mystic, and then we need also the synoptics telling us about the humanity and divinity of Christ. Okay, we need both. We need both. Everybody still with me? So, in 360, there's a heretic, by the way, a really smart man. Apollinaris is his name. And by the way, he was an ally of Athanasius. He was a great fighter of the Arians, all right, in defending the divinity of Christ. But later he finds in defending the divinity, or we find, that his defense of the divinity of Christ takes him too far. And he begins to argue that the human nature of Christ is absorbed in the divinity. And you see lots of metaphors for this, the drop of water getting absorbed in the sea, the honey getting absorbed in the water, things of this nature, okay? Well, what's wrong with this? If there really is not a human nature, then, who, then, then, then was there actually human suffering on the cross? Right? Was, it, was, was this act of redemption what it, we believe that it was, or was our Lord sort of wearing some kind of a human shell, something like that? So the sacrifice that secures a redemption isn't really a sacrifice if human flesh is just sort of a mere garment that our Lord was wearing. This heresy evolves into, and we are simplifying greatly here, monophysitism, right? One nature, the monophysites, one nature. And this thing, monophysitism, is like Protestantism much later, branches into a thousand versions of it that I don't get and Leo didn't even waste his time with, as we'll find out, as we'll find out. But just to give you a general understanding and picture. This monophysitism, one divine nature, is condemned at synods in Rome, at Alexandria, and in Antioch. And it's gone. There's a reaction to it. All right, so the pendulum swings the other way, and the people that emerge on the scene are led by this chap, also a bright guy, whose name is Nestorius, all right? And he takes, the, he takes it too far in the other direction. He says not only that were there two natures, but now we have two persons, okay? And this is called Nestorianism, all right? And again, we have this, but we, we're still faced with the same problems. Who died on the cross? If there's two persons in Jesus Christ, did the human person die on the cross and not God? Can we say God died on the cross? Well, yes, we know as Catholics, we do say that. God died on the cross. He did, right? But so Nestorius creates the same unresolved questions for us with his formula. But then also, Mary. Was Mary the mother of God or was she merely the mother of Jesus, the person? Jesus, the human person. And by the way, this, this, these controversies did in fact result in fighting in the streets and crowds, you know, if there, if there was, if there was a, a priest or a bishop who was an historian, crowds would burst into the cathedral and interrupt his homilies, inter interrupt his preaching. Praise God. And I'm not suggesting that we do that here. <laughs> I know the preaching here is very sound. Right. So, and so this question gets resolved where? Well, it gets, the church always, in all of her crises, it's so beautiful, she always raises up someone, right? So, for example, uh, 
Athanasius is there to answer the Arians. And then this man, St. Cyril of Alexandria, is there to answer the Nestorians, right? And then Leo, of course, who comes in to solve the problem even later, all right? So there's an exchange of letters between St. Cyril of Alexandria and his friend John of Antioch, these two schools. And in the court, and you should read them, they're good. And in the course of these letters, the two of them, in genuine love for one another, but still out of some theological rivalry, are trying to uh, come to a good answer to this question. Cyril anathematizes Nestorius. The result is the Emperor Theodosius, and we talked about this, emperors calling councils, right, drawing that from pagan Rome. The Emperor Theodosius in the East calls the Council of Ephesus, the Council of Ephesus. In 431, St. Cyril is appointed by Pope Celestine, Celestine, right, this is important, to chair this council, to preside at this council at Ephesus in 431. Nestorius is condemned, the two persons, right, is condemned, and also this beautiful doctrine of the God-bearer, right, Theotokos, is proclaimed. That's my icon, by the way. I, I bought that in, um, in Serbia. Yeah. So, the Theotokos is proclaimed. Is proclaimed. Everybody still with me on the story? I told you we'd come back to this complicated map. I promise. Yeah. In 444, Cyril of Alexandria dies. He is succeeded by a very ill-tempered man, a really unpleasant fellow named Dioscorus, as the bishop in Alexandria. All right? He accuses Cyril of being a compromiser on, on, the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the resolution at Ephesus. But he also wants to assert his authority, not, over the, not only over the school in Antioch, but also over Constantinople, okay? So there's, 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 there's human desire for power that's, that's inextricably linked to all of these stories. Important to understand, all right? He asserts the union of the two natures so aggressively that now the pendulum swings back to the Monophysites, to Monophysitism, all right? And he, and he goes on a crusade. Well, that's not the right word because they didn't use that word that He goes on a war path, he goes on the war path to eliminate any remaining Nestorians. And in fact, even to the point where he and his followers are using forged documents saying, oh, Athanasius wrote this and this sort of thing. And they were all documents that had been written by Apollinaris. All right? So now we have two, this is, we have two factions, two erroneous, erring factions, the Nestorians and the Monophysites warring with each other all over the East. That's what's going on. That's what's going on. You're all still with me? Good. The matter comes to a head with a chap named, way up there, Eutyches. All right? Now, Eutyches is an Archimandite. He is the, he is the head of not just one monastery, but probably several monasteries. So he's like an abbot, I guess, or or he, he would have several monasteries. He was a dim-witted fellow. <laughs> he was not a theologian. He had no theological training. But he was a man of extraordinary influence. Why? Well, first of all, he had hundreds of monks underneath him. All right? But he was also, and here's where this really becomes like Downton Abbey. So keep up. He was also the godfather of this man, Chrysiphius, right? Who was what? The chamberlain or the eunuch, right? The, you know, the chief advisor to the emperor Theodosius. So Eutyches, dim-witted abbot, lots of monks under him, but a lot of pull at court. Good. Eutyches takes up Dioscorus's monophysitism, all right? And he influences the imperial household. And so now almost all of the imperial household is monophysite, except the princess Pulcheria. Do I have her on there? Yes, there she is. The princess Pulcheria, who is the sister of the emperor, Theodosius, who is a very namby-pamby, weak-willed man, all right? And also Pulcheria 
is not excited about the way uh, uh, Theodosius's wife uh, bears so much uh, influence on him. All right. So now the brawling begins all over again. There's a man named Bishop Eusebius of Dorotea, who I don't think I have on there. Shame on me. Uh, he excommunicates Eutyches. Eutyches appeals to Pope Leo. But Leo already knows what's going on. Leo's here. Good. Leo already knows what's going on because the Emperor Flavian, excuse me, the, the Patriarch Flavian, who's the Patriarch of Constantinople, who is a faithful man, a faithful Orthodox man, has already advised Leo about what's going on. All right? Leo writes, in reaction to this kerfuffle, he writes his tome, T-O-M-E. He writes Leo's tome, and he sends it with delegates to the east to stop the matter. And like I said, Leo doesn't even bother with all of the different strands and brains of monophysitism. And he just, using his clear Latin mind, actually this is one place where we can say Byzantine, because it was pretty Byzantine by this point. But using his clear Latin mind, he writes this tome, using the scriptures and the fathers, and the, and the essence of this tome is this. In Jesus Christ, there is one person alone, but in this unique hypostasis, two natures, the divine and human, each retaining its qualities and its own faculties. All right? The emperor calls a council. Ephesus 449. And this council is stacked by uh, the, de the deck is stacked by followers of Dioscorus and Eutyches, all right? Flavian, who's the good guy here, and the two delegates from Rome come into this council in Ephesus, and they are manhandled, physically, literally manhandled. The, 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 the bishops, maybe we'll see this at the Synod in October, the bishops start <laughs> punching and fighting each other. Flavian is so ill-used at this event, that he dies a few days later. The, this council of Ephesus, this council, uh, declares for Eutyches, declares, and um, uh, Leo hears of it. The delegates, the Roman delegates, uh, barely survive with their lives. They escape back to Rome. They report to Leo what happened, and Leo calls it what? He calls it the... Latrocinium, right? The robber council. So you've all heard that. So this is the robber council. All right? And he, and he immediately writes back to the emperor, Flavian, excuse me, not Flavian, Theodosius, and he says, you need to call another council. This would not have happened except that God intervened. And what happened? Theodosius dies. Okay? And who takes control of the emperor but his faithful sister, Pulcheria, who marries a man, another faithful man whose name is Martian, who now is the emperor. And he calls the Council of Chalcedon, or Chalcedon, and it is the largest council in the history of the church up to this point, about 600 delegates. Leo's formula is approved, and everyone proclaims, the famous line, what? Peter has spoken through Leo. Peter has spoken through Leo. And here's the formula. We won't read it all, but here's the important part. Uh, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures. Watch this. Without confusion. Without confusion. Or a Brit would say, without admixture. All right? So not confused, without change, without division, without separation, okay? And the matter rests. The day is not a total triumph. Why? Because of Canon 28 in this Council of Chalcedon by which the um, church in Constantinople attempts to assert itself on, uh, on a level of parity with Rome, Leo refuses to acknowledge this, but you can see in this paragraph 28, the seeds of schism, which comes to a final break in the middle of the 11th century, are all being, are, are even being formed back then. 
One thing more. Not only does this Council of Chalcedon make clear to us the two natures of Jesus Christ without confusion, but also from the theology of Chalcedon to be developed much later by Thomas Aquinas, then we come to understand, and I mentioned this at the beginning of my talk, the order of nature and the order of grace. And these two orders also exist without confusion. So if you want good dental hygiene, you don't make a novena to Our Lady, right? You go brush your teeth. That's the order of nature. If you have a test the next day, right, you don't put the book under the pillow and pray to the Holy Spirit. You study, right? If you have to give a lecture, you, you prepare for it. But, but thank God, I think there was a lot of grace here. Yeah. So, so this, this understanding of the order of nature and the order of grace without confusion, right? And St. Thomas will later say, grace perfects nature. And I'll give you one, little, one final image. So, and a lot of the churches don't do this now um, in the New Rite, though it is part of the New Rite, but especially in the Old Rite, last Sunday, excuse me, last Monday was Candlemas, right? February 2nd. And, and everyone has a candle. And this candle is made of beeswax. And to the ancients, the bee because bees don't reproduce, right? At least the worker bees, you know, do not reproduce, right? So to the ancients, the bee was very much a symbol of the virgin. And so the, yet, even though they don't reproduce, they do create this wax, this wax. And so in the candle, we have this magnificent image of our Lord. And if you have 100% beeswax candle and you light it on fire with the divine love, the charity of Christ, right? That entire candle, the human nature, the flesh, right, of our Lord is completely gone. It's completely gone. And so we have that image of our Lord giving all, right, on the cross, on the cross. And I think that we can trace this understanding and its clarification back to these events at Chalcedon. So, take home tonight the influence of Leo the Great. The papacy is coming into its own. The organizational authority of the church, the political authority of what becomes Christendom, right? The doctrinal authority, and of course, the spiritual shepherd, which we didn't have a lot of time to talk about tonight, though. Many of Leo's sermons are available, available to read, and, and you should, you should, you should read them. I think, uh, I think I'm out. Of, I think. Well, I'm going to pretend I'm out of time. Good. Thanks very much. I've heard that the Huns were successful because they were great archers on horseback. But what got them moving in the first place out of Mongolia? Yes, it is true they were great archers. Uh, Attila was a was a, a, a B minus uh, tactician. He was a, he was a poor strategist. Um, he, you know, he did not have a sense of logistics. What's that famous line from Napoleon? An army marches on its stomach, right? Yeah. So the Huns pretty much lived off the land, and they, um, and in fact, in the in the Leo story, it, it's quite possible that part that the that uh, you know, a famine had been there the year before. Things were starting to turn around for the Italian peninsula. And, uh, uh, and, and, but but there, there was not, not going to be a lot of opportunity to eat. Uh, so that may also have influenced Attila's decision after his meeting with Leo. Um, but the thing that gets them moving west is the, is, is, is the Great Wall. They're stopped from raiding into, uh, from Mongolia down into... Uh, down, down into China. Uh, that's, the, that's the standard answer. But yeah, they were great, they were great horsemen. They kind of rode these very sturdy little ponies. Uh, they spent a lot of time in the saddle um, from a very early age, and they were great archers. 
uh, they didn't really engage in the way the Romans did. They would, they, you know, they would, they would engage very suddenly, uh, but, but they would break away very quickly if they thought they weren't going to be successful in battle. So they were really raiders. Um, it's interesting when you look at the, at, 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 at the subsequent uh, general, generals in history from this same um, uh, people. Uh, the great one, of course, is Genghis Khan, who comes in the 12th century, I think, or 13th century. Um, largest empire in the history of the world. But like Attila's, it doesn't outlive him. So it's not really an empire, but he does cut quite a swath across, even bigger swath. He goes on up into Russia. And then uh, Tamerlan uh, after him in the 1400s, I think. Same kind of story. Swift incursion into Europe and then, and then done. But as I understand it, the, the, the proximate cause of their, of, their, of their coming west was the building of the Great Wall. They could no longer make incursions into China. What happened with the Coptic Church during all that time? Oh, yeah, great question. What happened with the Coptic Church? Uh, the Coptic Church um, takes on, so after Monophysitism is, is, is pretty much resolved, uh, it, mo it moves east. The Syro-Malabars down in India are Monophysites for a time. Um, and then the Copts are also Monophysites for a time. And in fact, well into the modern period, and actually one of my colleagues at Catholic Answers, one of the apologists, could give you a better answer. But I understand that the official Coptic Church has now rejected Monophysitism, and they are, in fact, in union with Rome. But the exact date of that, I don't know. But Monophysitism does persist in the Copts for some time. For, I mean, for, for centuries, and also in other deep eastern churches and, and down into India. But the exact date's there. Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to go find out, though. I just want a clarification on the last uh, statement. So I know that the patriarch of the Coptic Church and is it Pope Pius, one of the Pope Piuses, uh, made a joint statement about, about the human natures. Um, doesn't that kind of reconcile or just clarify the differences and is that reflective of the Coptic Orthodox Church rejecting monophysism? Uh, I, I don't know the document to which you're referring, so I'm not even going to take a stab at answering the question. So Pius the 11th or the 10th or the 9th? or he doesn't know. Yeah. That's right. All right, I'm going to find out. Yeah. Where did the Huns go after when these heresies were popping up? Okay, so the Huns, after they meet uh, Leo on, at the top of the Italian peninsula. Um, has anyone ever been, been, been to Milan? Everybody knows where Milan is. So if you look, go a little bit, if you go, I don't know, 50 kilometers, 100 kilometers to the east, then you're kind of in that area of Mantova or Lake Garda, that area, which is on the river there, forget the name of the river where they met. So well up into northern Italy, he retreats back across the Rhine, grabs that German girl on the way, and then uh, he dies. And after Attila dies, his, the, the operation pretty much collapses. His uh, children fight over power, and he had quite a few children, I don't know how many. Um, and they, and they, they quarrel, and then, and then the Huns retreat back to, uh, back to the steps where they came from. Yes, uh, I don't know. Actually, as far as Iran, I don't know. Uh, certainly in, into the Middle East or, or, or near Middle East, uh, well into the Balkan Peninsula, um, into what we now call Eastern Europe. Uh, the, the stretch of, the, the, the swath of Genghis Khan was even greater, uh, well up into Russia. Yeah, so just before Melanie, we, I, I should have mentioned this at the end because it's kind of like a little word picture that I did about you know Pope Leo. There are these three converging questions: uh, the heresies concerning the person and natures of Jesus Christ, who is the administrative authority of the church, right, and then the political turmoil of 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 of, of the collapse after the collapse of Rome in the West, right. So these things converge in history around the life of this man. And he, he confronts in his life all three of them. This is just a little summary of what I said I should have ended with this. And then because of this, you know, providence lays the, the foundation for the, for, for the Christian age. So anyway, a little illustration. The split between the, uh, the Catholic and the Orthodox Church, 
you know, my understanding was that the Orthodox Church didn't want, Eastern Church didn't want to accept the primacy of the Pope in, in Rome. But were there theological differences as well that led to the split? The, the principal theological difference is what we refer to as the filioque, and it's um, the question of whether or not, you know, we, when, we, when we say the creed, uh, we say the Son proceeds from the Father and the Spirit, and they say from the Father, um, so filioque and, you know, that uh, way and. So uh, that's the principal theological difference. But actually, since the schism, um, there are certainly doctrinal differences. The Orthodox Church permits divorce and remarriage. Uh, they permit contraception. Now, I mean, there might be an Orthodox person who would say, well, that's nuanced or something like that, but they do. And so separating themselves from the, uh, fr fr from Peter, uh, they, they, they now have other, other doctrinal errors that have crept in, in, into their thought. Uh, they have a magnificent liturgy. And, you know, of course, uh, Deacon Sabatino, he's Mel Melkite, right? right? All these come, I think, from John Chrysostom. Uh, I'm, I'm not positive. He would be the guy to ask. Um, they have a magnificent liturgy. In many ways, it's more reverent, I think, or it's just some more theological beauty to it. Uh, but, um, but it's uh, more mysterious in, in many, many ways. But, but, yeah, doctrinal errors have crept into their thought. And what's really important to understand about that schism is, you know, we mark the date as 1054 or something like that with the iconoclast controversy. But, but from this moment that I've described to you up to that moment in the middle 11th century, there are multiple schisms and separations. Uh, there's one that follows Chalcedon in the early 500s, like around 530, that lasts for about 30 years or something like that. And then there are more and more and more. So, so the seeds of this division are, are being laid, uh, at, you know, at the, actually, you know, even within the dividing of the Roman Empire. Well, thank you so much, Praise Christopher Tech. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.